This is a public service announcement. Nope. <laughs> this is a public service announcement letting you know that neither fanboy nor know-it-all have ingested any illegal drugs prior to this podcast about Dune, wherein lots of people ingest lots of drugs, possibly? Drugs. Drugs. Yeah. Hallucinogen. 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 That's a drug. It is a drug, but not illegal because everybody uses it. Well, yeah. not everybody. It's not It's not Tylenol. wrong if it's legal. It's not wrong if it's legal. It's It's like Tylenol. Hmm. Except like, hallucinogenic. There you go. Hallucinogenic Tylenol. Sponsoring this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. <laughs> Probably about time to roll the, the theme music. <laughs> what is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All and... Back inside our crazy brains. I'm Jake. I am Paul. And, uh, I mean, our intro probably undercut the very point I was (laughs) trying to make, at least for me, (laughs) about not having ingested any sort of hallucinogens. Yeah. But at the same time, I think I'm incoherent all the time. Well, that is the thing, isn't it? That's what makes our podcast so enjoyable is that we can talk and talk and talk and talk. We realize that we're not necessarily making any sense, and yet we enjoy ourselves. And people, a few people, listen to us. We hope so. Is that the word you use to describe our podcast when you talk to your therapist, enjoyable? (laughs) Enjoyable. (laughs) It's enjoyable right up until the hour 20 mark. And then I think, you know what, Jake, it's about time to wrap this up. Speaking of about time to wrap things up, two and a half hour movies. Two and a half hour movies. I have a lot less patience for that in my old age. And here's the thing. It's only based on half the book. Part one. Part one. Half the book. It might even be just a third of the book because I was hearing people as I was leaving the theater that that there's going to be three of these suckers. So unless they like do... To Dune, the first book, part one and part two, and then all 13 other books in one big movie. Right. I was going to say, there have been at least a half a dozen sequels and prequels just by the guy who wrote Frank Herbert in the first place, let alone the ones his kid tried to cash in on over the decades after his death. Brian Herbert, Kevin Anderson. So here's an interesting little bit of trivia before we start get cranking on Dune. I know the guy who uh, who has written, co-written the later books with Brian Herbert. You know him? Kevin Anderson. He lives here in Colorado Springs. Really? Yes. He, uh, yeah, I, I interviewed him once when I was uh, working for the local paper here. He is a fascinating, super nice guy. He does all of his writing, actually, as he's hiking. He takes a recorder, he hikes up these huge 14ers, he talks to himself the entire time he's walking, brings them back down, hands them to his assistant to type up all of his notes, and then he uses those as the basis for for what he writes. Hmm. So go figure. I do not write like that. No. I I have never written a movie review while hiking up a 14er. Never. Never? Ever? No. No. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm just trying to process that mentally, thinking about yeah how that would work. But I can totally. I guess you know what I can kind of see how somebody would get there at the same yeah. time. So here's the thing: like when I am uh, this this way that we are talking right now, it is mm-hmm. not actually very um, conducive to the way I I naturally like to talk. Right, facing you know we're we're looking at each other, even though we're doing it via screens. We're we're doing all that. I find myself concentrating a lot more on on outside inputs. Funnily enough, I have my deepest, most profound conversations when I'm walking with somebody. So you can totally see how um, how walking could actually stir the creative process. Yeah, I mean, but the more important question is, how much money has he made? Kevin of, Anderson? Off of the Dune series. Have you asked him that? I know that's a I, 
question. not ask him directly, but I was invited to a, an opening. <laughs> this shows you the difference between my books and Kevin Anderson. Mm-hmm. I, my, my book opening, the publication ceremony is really just getting a box of books in the mail. And then I show my wife and I say, hey, look, my books are out. And that is it. Mm-hmm. Kevin Anderson, when his latest Dune book came out, he rented out an entire Moroccan restaurant, invited a hundred people, including me, um, to take part, and it included belly dancers and the whole bit. So I think he's doing. I think he's doing okay. Wow did you did you eat Moroccan food? I did eat Moroccan food. And what did you think? I sat on the I sat on the ground, not on the ground on the on the floor because you know you don't actually sit at, at, at chairs, right. you just sit on the ground, you sit on the floor, they have these low tables, you eat everything with your hands. Um, they tell you always to eat with your right hand because your left hand is traditionally what you use to wipe your, right. your rear with. So it's always polite to eat with your right hand. Being a left-handed person, it was a little bit different for me. And Jake, I have to say, it was pretty tasty. It was good food. Now, I haven't been back to eat a lot of Moroccan food, but I think that's just because it's intimidating. You know, there's a lot of food and you're sitting on the ground and, you know, I'm still not quite sure of all the etiquette involved. Well, there you go. I uh, actually have not done Moroccan food myself. I have a culinary one up on you. That you makes do, me feel very which happy. Which is pretty rare for you. <laughs> it really is. I feel like I need to uh, I need to eat some different food now, just to just to continue that trend. Yeah, mm. we'll get you I going. Have you had Ethiopian food? I have done Ethiopian. Oh, curses! Yeah. All right. Well, you know, Ethiopian's pretty cool. They got a pretty cool bread, uh, spongy yeah. bread that they they eat with that I find pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. What is your favorite type of of food? Like ethnic food, if you were going to go out and, and eat a not American food, what is your favorite? Mexican food is where it's at. I love the use of spices and cheeses and meats uh, in creative ways and sauces, more so than Italian. Like I know Italian can get spicy. And I know that there, you know, true Italian connoisseurs will have a lot to say to me on this, but I prefer the the range of spices in Mexican cuisine than I, to the Italian cuisine and love all the different things that you can do with, with Mexican food. So that for me is, I love it. Hmm. Very interesting. See, I wouldn't even consider Mexican food necessarily ethnic food because it's so, it's so common. Like I eat, I eat Mexican food all the time. I love I mean, Tex-Mex, but sure. <laughs> count that. I mean, I count that. That's fine. <laughs> I eat I eat Tex-Mex, I eat Cuban food, I eat traditional Mexican food. I am all over the Mexican map. Look at this. Look at Paul. Look at Paul expanding his boundaries. Oh, <laughs> I haven't wow. had Brazilian food though. I feel like I've taken this conversation off topic. You haven't had Brazilian? No, I haven't had. I don't We've got I the had... We've got the Brazilian barbecue restaurant here in town that I feel like you'd really enjoy. I have never had it. Tucanos? No. You need to sign it. up for the birthday club because you get a free meal for your birthday, and that's like a $26 value. <laughs> and they just bring spits, skewers of meat. They just bring to your table. It's fantastic. That is pretty cool. Anything that you can use as both a utensil and a weapon, I am in favor of. All in favor. Uh, speaking of food, Dune. Dune. Food for thought. No, uh, we're coming back around to Dune. We got off on that because of Kevin Anderson's Moroccan food book launch, which does sound pretty great. But we have seen Denis Villeneuve. I don't even know how. I don't. I've never heard anybody actually. I've never heard him say his name, so I just like to say it as pretentiously <laughs> as possible. Denis Villeneuve. It's one of his most recent joints that's releasing jointly on HBO Max and in theaters everywhere. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail as we jump in on it. Also, it's October. So of course, you knew that Paul was going to force me to torture myself through a horror film. I I am super excited about it. I deftly dodged it last year when I suggested Netflix's brand new release, Hubie Halloween. 
That was the that was the lamest Halloween pick ever. But was much appreciated by me for the fact that it wasn't a scary horror film. But now uh, I let Paul catch me. And we watched His House on Netflix. So we'll be talking about that after we talk about Dune. And, of course, we'll wrap up the show the way we always love to wrap up the show with the most least important thing. But now it's time for Dune. I was talking to a coworker about the fact that I was going to see a screening of Dune and he replied saying, oh, that's a remake of the one with The Rock, right? <laughs> and I thought to myself, no, no, it came out in the 1980s. The Rock wasn't making movies in the 1980s. He's like, no, but they made, they made, you know, another version in, in, he's like, and he starts looking it up as we're talking and yeah, yeah. In 2005 with the rock. And I'm thinking, no, they definitely have not. And I, but I'm like, maybe this was made, went straight to TV or something. And I just don't know. So I'm on IMDb. I'm on Google. I'm furiously trying every search I can. The rock Dune 2005 Dune. Like I'm like, and I'm saying to this guy, I do not. And he's, I'm, he's telling me he's staring at it in front of his face and I am looking everywhere to find it. And I'm just telling him, I cannot find this film. I do not know what you are talking about. And he was so <laughs> proud of himself. He's like, I stumped the movie guy. Ha ha. And I just finally said, can you just send me the link that you're looking at? Because we were vir talking virtually and send me this link because I don't think this movie exists. I have no idea what you're talking about. He sends me the link and I click on it. And sure enough, he was talking about Doom. <laughs> The movie about the video game. <laughs> very, very different movie. Very, very different film. That did come out in 2005 and did have The Rock in it, <laughs> but was definitely not Dune, D-U-N-E, that I was talking about. So, <laughs> Man, I tell you what, Dune, Dune. It's just... I can understand the confusion because, frankly, there's been some strange, strange um, takes on Frank Herbert's book. You know, the original Dune movie, I remember, my wife is a huge Dune fan, right? She's okay. she's read all the books. She knows them backwards and forwards. She can she can tell your Atreides or versus your Harkonnen. You can, she knows all the characters, right? So when we were dating, we watched the Dune movie, the 1984 Dune movie, because she had never seen it, and we thought it would be fun to see. Um, it was really bad. And as we were preparing for this podcast, I thought, you know, it would be kind of fun to watch that. And I watched the trailer, and I said, no, no, <laughs> there is no way I am going to watch this movie. The only thing I remember from the original the original Dune movie was Sting, the singer Sting, in some mm -hmm. sort of uh, loincloth, I think, mm. of some sort, Excellent. which is not something I need to see. It's ever. not the memory. You know, if you were to have one memory of the movie, it's probably not the one you would want. No, no. There was a Dune miniseries in 2000, yes. also not starring The Rock, Definitely but it does star not. William Hurt, which is kind of nice. There's that. I uh, the, you you answered some of my question here because my confession here is that Dune was one of those films that if it was a better film it would be on my backlist Hall of Shame except that a lot of people don't like it and so it's not in anybody's Hall of Shame except maybe David Lynch or Stings or Kyle <laughs> yeah. McLaughlin or whatever his name was um, who was in it but uh, yeah I never watched the the original in the from the 80s i never have read any of the books didn't see the miniseries i was i didn't even i hadn't even seen the trailer for the new dune so this was i was a completely Ooh. blank slate wow for this movie you had never even been in the desert you had never even seen a dune i frankly i don't even know that deserts are real or because of yeah. i think they could just be fabricated the earth is flat and there's no deserts they don't exist there you go. they're just there a myth go made up to to keep us 
enslaved to our cities. They're like, don't go out to the desert. It's terrible. I'm like, okay, I believe you. <laughs> so being a complete do notice, I was actually talking with, with a friend of mine, actually. Um, what would this movie be comprehensible if you didn't know anything about Dune at all? So for, for a person like you stepping into the movie, did it make sense? It, it did, but only in a very pass, barely passable sort of way in the sense that like, I technically understood the basic plot of what was going on. But at the same time, there was so much, uh, after I watched it, I watched it with friend of the show from last episode, Tim Nestor. And we were talking about it because neither of us had, you know, a lot of, had much previous Dune experience. And um, there, it felt sort of like what we remember from the Star Wars prequels, where <laughs> like they really wanted to set up all of this kind of political and cultural intrigue. And I thought they did it better than was done in the Star Wars prequels. But at the same time, it was still pretty dense, even for how they tried to split this up and make it more than just one movie, you know, turn it into a part one. It right. still felt pretty dense. And there were still a lot of things where you're like, well, hopefully they're going to explain that later because otherwise it's going to be confusing or nonsensical. It right. felt like they were in places either leaning on you knowing something about it already or assuming that, or sort of like making you assume that they're going to explain something to you later. Cause there was a lot that did not make sense at face value. And so you would either just say, have to accept that they're going to explain it to you later or it doesn't make sense. Right. Right. And this is a deeply, this is a deeply political and oddly religious book. And the movie expresses that it's, it is very dense. I remember reading Dune when I was in junior high and being flummoxed by the whole experience. Um, essentially just to, just to set up both the book and the movie a little bit, you, this, this takes place in this sprawling universal empire, this galactic empire. Uh, the emperor rules over the galaxy, but he's dealing with sort of a feudal type of environment where there's a lot of powerful families at work here as, as well. And for years and years and years, this planet called, what is it? Ar 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 Arrakis. Arrakis. Yes. Arrakis, otherwise known as Dune, has been one of the plum planets in the system. Why is that? Because it has this material called spice. Spice is this hallucinogenic uh, drug, essentially, that allows uh, ship navigators to find their way through the galaxy. It's an important, it's an important substance that allows the type of, of transportation that they need. And thus, because of that, it is the most powerful um, element in the entire galaxy. For years and years and years, this planet has been ruled by House Harkonnen, uh, which is very evil, very bad. They've been uh, plundering this this land for a good long while for spice and becoming extraordinarily rich. But the emperor has had enough of their rule and he has given it over to another powerful house called House Atreides. Is that correct? Atreides. Um, so Atreides, yes. So uh, so it goes to this family, but the leader of House Atreides, Leto. Uh, knows that it is actually sort of this poison gift. It's designed to shrink the power of that particular house. There's some nefarious plans in place to destroy House Atreides um, and, and essentially make one less threat to the emperor. Meanwhile, and this is where it gets really complicated, the Bene Gesserit is this shadowy, mostly female organization that has these quasi-religious characteristics that sort of molds the entire galaxy from the background. And one of the Bene Gesserit's, uh, I guess, acolytes, priestesses, witches, uh, would actually be... Um, he, she has sort of been um, House Atreides, uh, Atreides, excuse me, um, the the concubine of the leader. 
uh, Leto. And, and together they have this son named Paul, who is both the um, heir apparent to House Atreides. She has also been training him secretly in the secret uh, Bene Gesserit ways, which makes him a very formidable figure indeed. Um, she thinks that he may be the one, the one to sort of lead the male leader of, of the Bene Gesserit who can unite the galaxy and do all sorts of things. So he sort of becomes this, this messianic figure. Um, so that's that's the setup. That's essentially you did a great the world job summarizing it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the world that we're stepping into, and you just have to sort of keep track of that while you're eating your popcorn. Right, you know, because you're even brushing over all of the intrigue about how the Bene Gesserit are supposed to be this neutral party, but also they have their own machinations that they're working across multiple different houses and multiple different places. And then the emperor of the Imperium and how he's working across these multiple. And then also the long running like war as i started to do a little bit of know-it-all research on this the long-running war that's been going on sort of like this cold war but not so cold war between harkonnen and atreides that's been going on for thousands of years that they kind of allude to in the movie but don't really dig into you're just kind of supposed to know that and you know this difference between uh the bene Gesserit who have their real religious type stuff but then also like the fake religious type stuff that they yeah. try to plant elsewhere and so that's a convoluted mess there, but then like the different the hallucinations versus the visions and what is the voice that felt exactly. very much like the force, but yes, obviously Dune came before. So maybe George Lucas was just, you know, stealing a little bit with the force from Dune anyways. So there's a lot, you did an there's excellent job summarizing it and kind of, you know, well, and Get we haven't even out. mentioned, even as long as we've been talking, we haven't even mentioned the Fremen, who are the, yeah. the natives of, of the planet. Um, and they are hey, they have long been uh, sort of rebelling against Har House Arconan. Um, they have lived on this planet for, well, ever since, you know, the planet was around and people were around on it. Um, because they are surrounded by the spice so much, their eyes turn blue. And since we've been talking a little bit about the Bene Gesserit and, and the mess, messianic figure that, that they think Paul may be, uh, they also do some duplicitous work and start setting up the idea with the people on the planet that Paul may be their messiah, the Fremen's messiah. And so when he lands there, um, it's, it's, it, it's essentially setting up where is this guy really just the heir apparent to House Atreides or could he be the Messiah for the planet Dune? Uh, it's, it's very convoluted. Um, it's a good thing that this movie looks so nice, Jake, because, man, if, if you go in not knowing anything and if you're not really on the top of your mental game, you're going to get lost pretty quickly. Yeah, and that's where for me, I, I sort of tease this in the intro of the fact that this is hitting HBO Max at the same time it's hitting theaters. I saw this in IMAX. And of course, with the soundtrack that has been made for this by Hans Zimmer, who's excellent for scores and soundtracks. Excellent. When you're in IMAX, I think the thing most people don't think about until they go see an IMAX film if they haven't been in a while, is the fact that it's not just a gigantic screen, it's an audio experience as well. And so when you watch a movie like Dune in IMAX, it's a very different experience because you are getting blasted by that Hans, Hans Zimmer score. And it's very ethereal and otherworldly and loud and uh, abrasive and alien in the way it, it comes at you. I mean, it makes you feel the notes and the beats in your chest as you're watching stuff happen on screen. And so you're drawn into the experience in a different way. I had the distinct thought both during the movie and afterwards that, man, I don't think this is going to play nearly as well oh, at yeah. home as it will in theaters or especially in IMAX. Absolutely. I, I did not see it on IMAX, but I did see it on a big screen and, and I cannot, this is sort of one of those movies and I don't necessarily think that there's a ton of movies out there, but this is one of them that deserves to be seen on a big, big screen. Because it is, 
Whatever you think about the plotting, whatever you think about the pace, whatever you think about any of that, this is a spectacular looking movie. Yeah. It is astounding when you look at kind of the, the visual effects that you have, the the atmosphere that you feel. The the movie does an excellent job of putting you into another world. Actually a, a couple of different worlds, but it is it is a beautiful, spectacular looking picture. And right. and certainly I, I just can't imagine watching it on the small screen. Yeah, I think I think it's getting pretty positive advance reviews right now, um, but I, I think that's mostly people seeing it on the big screen. I'm curious to see how those might change as people start to watch it at home via their HBO Max subscriptions and sort of start to wonder what everybody else is thinking about. Because honestly, I did start checking my mental watch. Like I had to have my phone off during the film, but I started checking my mental watch, you know, two hours in being like, oh my goodness, when is this... <laughs> gonna be done like this is man this is long well and that's the thing yeah i i totally agree with you it felt it felt i enjoyed the movie i also felt that it could have been a good 45 minutes shorter two and a half hours it felt long and and it felt long it wasn't just long it felt long despite all the the battle sequences despite everything that 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 went into the movie i it, it just, it kind of dragged for me after a while. And I thought, oh no, not another battle. No, <laughs> no. Just get to where you're going. It's going to be fine. It's one of those that I, I did have the distinct feeling that I probably wouldn't have even appreciated this that much on a smaller screen without mm. the big bombast of the big screen and the theater speakers. Like I, I feel like I'd be kind of underwhelmed because mm. so much of it, so many times where you're sort of struck by it is the the huge visuals that are shot for IMAX and the way Hans Zimmer score, Hans Zimmer score just smacks you across the chest and, and you're like, okay, all right, this is a huge sci-fi slash sword and sandal space epic. I'm in for it. <laughs> and then you're kind of like, all right, yep. Let's, uh, let's move it along a little bit here. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like the scenes themselves drag on. It's just, it almost felt like it was overloaded. You know what it felt like? It felt like going to a pretty good buffet, mm. but taking off more than you could eat. Yeah. You know, Fair and enough. you end up leaving some stuff behind. Yeah. Um, one of the things that struck me about this movie was the cast. I mean, you just look at a cast list for this and it, right. it's really impressive. Uh, they clearly spare, spell spared no expense for this movie you know timothy chalamet was is playing paul atreides he was excellent he's very good in this uh but you had oscar isaac josh brolin uh, dave bautista jason momoa um zendaya there were a ton javier bardem javier bardem there were a ton of really recognizable faces here and i thought that they did a good job of at least Giving you an idea of the characters. Obviously, this is a confusing story, but I think they did a good job of delineating the characters, helping you to see who they were. And I, I actually really appreciated that. Except for, I'm going to say this, Zendaya's character, which got a lot of screen time, but not much character development in this film for as much time as they spent on everything else. She, It just honestly felt like she was playing her character from Spider-Man in a spacesuit, where <laughs> she was weirdly trying to deliver these deadpan, like sassy lines that just didn't work for me. I, I, it was very distracting, and that took me out of the experience. I'm not when she, once she did finally start to, they gave her a little bit to say. Yeah. It was like, ah, darn, this feels this doesn't doesn't fit within the universe very similar to the feeling i had when they tried the one joke with jason momoa in the middle of the film where you're just like oh no no please don't that was bad like that was so bad and just completely took you out of the experience that's a really good point i think because when you read the book it is a very serious book. There is not a levity, a lot of levity in this. I don't think Frank Herbert was necessarily, he wanted to create a world and he did a really great job of it. He was not 
anticipating it to be a roller coaster Star Wars like trip through the stars. And so you do have these elements that are are thrown into the movie that are trying to give it a little bit of fun, a little bit of humor, a little bit of levity, and it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily feel natural to the movie's vibe. It didn't. You know? Mm-mm. And so when they tried it with Momoa, when they tried it with Zendaya, it was just like, yeah, it does. It's not working for me. And that yeah. that was those were two of the things other than the length that didn't feel right, where it did feel like that kind of got too bloated, took too much off at the buffet. Those were the, the other elements that didn't work for me um, with Momoa and Zendaya, where it was like it just didn't fit tonally and and kind of took you out of what was otherwise a pretty engrossing world. Like I did think that was probably the strength of the film was the world building in spite of the weaknesses that that had. Um, It did have some strengths because I was, I was intrigued by the premise and by this idea of um, that they're setting up with sort of this feudal clan conflict and empire and, political yeah. social class conflict i was like that that's kind of interesting stuff to me yeah but. yeah it felt in in some ways a little like game of thrones in that way i mm-hmm. think you know where you had you had these houses vying for power um it, it would have almost been cool to concentrate a little bit more on that honestly if i was going to if i was going to give frank herbert uh, some advice on how to rewrite his book <laughs> it might be one thing i would i would say i because that stuff really fascinates me that 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 whole political intrigue and, and that will, I'm sure continue in some way, shape or form. But this is really Paul Atreides story and, and a tradies story. And I think that that's a, his story is not as inherently as interesting to me. You know, yeah. I, I don't particularly care if he's the Messiah for this planet. I, I, but I, but the whole, the whole universe is centered around that, that central question. Yeah. Um, you know what really worked for me? Huh. The dragonfly ships. I thought those were so cool. The buzzing, vibrating wings. Oh, I totally want to fly one. I thought yeah. that was really nifty. I like the hover effect that they used for the the Imperium soldiers as yeah. they would descend sort of out of the sky. They didn't have visible jetpacks, so they had this hover effect. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, especially the way they would use it sometimes was sort of sucking the sound out and and seeing them float in. I thought that was really effective. Um, though the other thing that took me out, though I guess we have to blame the original author for this, is why would you name a character Idaho? Oh, that was the best part. Duncan Idaho? That <laughs> like might that? be one of the best names ever. I mean, it's it's a funny name, but again, in in the context of this ultra serious political, socio political commentary that's set ten thousand years in the future and has nothing to do with Earth, having a character whose name is Duncan Idaho is like what? Why? But like see, when you have all these other ridiculous names like Atreides and Harkonnen and Vladimir and. Ha- Gurney Halleck and Thufir Hawad and Stilgar and Liet Kynes and Raban and and then Duncan Idaho. <laughs> See, Come my on. theory, my theory is, I think that 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 Frank Herbert was was British, and so he probably didn't even know there was such a thing as Idaho. <laughs> he thought it was exotic. Exotic, exactly. Yeah. I I still think it's one of the coolest names in all of literature, Duncan Idaho. You know he's someone not to be trifled with. <laughs> uh, so that that did I didn't I didn't know that Herbert was British. So that that makes a little bit more sense as an American having this you know sci-fi alien epic that has nothing to do with Earth, and then all of a sudden there's a dude named Duncan Idaho. Just felt too felt too corn white bread middle America to me, literally. With him. okay, you know what I I just lied to you. He he is actually. He was born in Tacoma, Washington. Oh, so. he knew exactly what he, he knew exactly. Oh, what give me a break! Was. What doesn't what it feel? World? Doesn't it feel like a British book, though? Doesn't it feel like a I've British never read the book. story? I have no idea. Never read it. I did. I will say, I did. It did cause me to put it on my to-read list because I'm like, I bet the book is pretty good. It is. It is pretty good, and I, from what I understand, from what I remember, uh, the book really reflects the 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 movie. Actually, reflects the book pretty well. Um, when I was reading it way back when I was fourteen, 
Um, I the the most powerful scene that I remember is the pain box. You know, the Bene Gesserit comes in, mm. leader of the Bene Gesserit comes in and tests Paul uh, with with this box that just contains pain. I remember that so vividly when I was a kid, and I thought that that scene was really good. Uh, the Bene Gesserit felt just as they should. They looked um, powerful. They looked sneaky. They had these cool, tall headdresses that I really thought looked added to their intimidation factor. Um, that is, I would much, I would really like to see a whole story based on uh, the Bene Gesserit because I think they're pretty interesting. Well, and I mean, is that your segue to set us up to talk about the fact that it appears that they're making a show about the Bene Gesserit? Yes, that was completely planned. Because <laughs> uh, it's been announced that Denis Villeneuve is working on a TV series called Dune colon The Sisterhood. Oh, yeah. And it is supposed to center on the lives of the Bene Gesserit. I, I do think, again, getting back to a point that I made earlier, I think in some ways there are a lot of fascinating stories around this world that have nothing to do with the story that, that Frank Herbert gave us. Um, but they have everything to do with the worlds that he created. Hmm. We'll see what happens. I think there is, I I will say, I guess, ultimately, I, fought, I felt like there was a lot of potential. I didn't think all of it was realized in this presentation, but I was intrigued, um, you know, coming to like... Dune Part 2? You seeing I, Dune Part 2? I would watch Dune Part 2 just to see if they could deliver on some of the things that I found intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, if they didn't, then I would be out for part three and beyond. But if they did, then I'd be like, okay, I can forgive some of the things, you know, it's like part two, I feel like has the, the ability to redeem or undercut part one. And so it was intriguing enough that I would give it a chance. Like Avengers Endgame. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like that. I can understand Maybe. that. Sure. I can understand that. I, I, I was sold by the, the special effects. I think that that you could tell that this was a world that is being fully realized. Um, I am interested to see what comes later. And yeah, I'm, I guess I'm kind of in, in your same boat. I, I'm going to be curious. I'm not going to be fanatical. It's not something where no. I'm going to set my, you know, write it down on my calendar. Oh, good heavens. In four years, we get to see Dune Part 2. Right. Um, but I'll definitely see it when it comes out. Yeah, and I'll, I'll see it in theaters because that's where to see it. That's where to see it. But as a outside of that, like I'd say for the theater experience, I would give this film a, a 7 out of 10 because mm. I think it was an enjoyable theater experience. As an overall movie, I'm leaning kind of more towards a 5.5, 5.75 out of 10 just because I, I do think for a lot of people it's going to be – more dense and slow than they have patience for if they're not going to go see it in a theater. And I think that has to be considered sort of like you hear when people release an album, you have to give it a car test to -hmm. see, is this something Mm -hmm. that, you know, you can listen to in the car and it be a real, a real hit. Uh, For me, a movie can't just be good in theaters. Like Avatar, for example, I think we've talked about that before as a theater experience, 10 out of 10, one of my favorite theory theater experience of all time seeing it 3d imax that was amazing seeing it on home video as as it were was completely underwhelming like oh this was not a good movie at all <laughs> and so that that's where i give it those two separate ratings in a case like this yeah yeah it's a tricky one i think i would probably land i'm not going to give it two separate ratings i'm going to put it right in 6.5 it felt it felt long to me um but the special effects were great. The world building was great. I think that the costumes, oddly enough, I never noticed costumes. Costumes here were super effective. It gave it a whole spooky, weird vibe that I really appreciated. And I think that when I see it with my Dune fluent wife, um, I could have a different opinion walking out of that. There you go. Dune part one. That wasn't really in the trailers. They kind of surprise you with that at the beginning of the film. Uh, Dune Part 1 in theaters and HBO Max. What do you think? Are you a Dune head? Do you have all sorts of critiques? Are you all in? We want to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I am AC Paul. 
And now it's time to talk about our horror film of the October month, His House. So, Jake, how long have we been doing this podcast? Paul, we've been doing this podcast for five years. Wow, you were like 16 at the time, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, just, just a child. Every single year, I think every single October, I have forced you, except for last year, as you pointed out, to watch a horror movie. And we have seen what I think are some really good ones. We saw The Haunting from 1963, which you completely insulted. We've seen Nosferatu. We've seen plenty of really strong movies. And we've typically gone back in the backlog to watch black and white, spooky, traditionally haunted house type of movies. This was kind of a different experience for both of us because this time I forced you to jump just a couple of years ago to watch a very, very different haunted house movie called His House available at Netflix. And I, I, gotta, I gotta get some thoughts from you on, what, did you think it was scary? So first off, I have to fact check myself. We've been doing the podcast for four and a half years, not five four and years. Four and a half years. I apologize uh, for for spreading false information. Just got to get that out of the way real quick. <laughs> Paul, I uh, <laughs> I have a confession at this point in the episode. Oh, no. I did watch it. I watched most of it pretty close to on mute. What? You are kidding me. With subtitles on. <laughs> what is wrong with you? And I got to say, it's way less scary if you watch it <laughs> that way, which was fantastic. I like this movie a whole lot more than I thought by watching it mostly on mute. Basically, any of the like social commentary normal scenes, I would turn the volume up enough so I could hear it because I was watching it late at night. I didn't want to wake up the kids. Also, I hate horror films, so I didn't care. And then anytime it looked like it was going to remotely get scary or be in the dark of the house with creepy things, I just promptly, you know, turn the volume all the way down and just watch the subtitles. And and it would just say, oh, voice in the wall or skittering or, you know, stuff like that or man yelps. And it was great. It was just wonderful. Jake. Jake. When you watch it that way, it's not that scary. I don't know if I've ever been more disappointed in you <laughs> than I am at this very moment. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't mute it. I had the volume at like two out of a hundred. Okay. Oh my goodness. I could get the general vibe that noises were being made. <laughs> to say you watched his house on mute is a little like saying, oh yeah, I, I, I was in Dune. I just had my eyes closed for most of it. <laughs> no, it's like it's like watching um, a quiet place while listening to a podcast. <laughs> it's like listening at the same to time we're like I'm going to add noise. Actually, very quiet. Because like a quiet place would be creepy even without sound, right? Because it's the whole thing is about no sound. But if you like turned on a podcast, then it might freak you out because you're not ready for it. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. I'm going to do a recap and this might be helpful to you too. I know what the movie's about. Look, there's these refugees from Sudan who are fleeing from violence and they, you know, they're, they're, they get admitted as asylum seekers to the outskirts of London and they get a dilapidated house, but they get it all to themselves. They're told all to themselves. That's pretty unusual. Usually they're trying to stuff a lot more people inside of it. We don't need, really get any explanation as to why that's the case. But housing shortage, of course. No. Like why like if there was a housing shortage, they would have put more people in there. So yeah, like but, why oh, did oh, they not? why 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 yeah. okay, gotcha. Why why they didn't do that for this particular couple. Okay. And uh, it, it becomes clear that they're trying to, to be good, upstanding citizens so that they can stay, prove that they're worth staying in the United Kingdom instead of being set back to whence they came. And um, yet you can tell that they've got some baggage and that that baggage is weighing heavily on their hearts and 
on their minds and possibly even on their walls. <laughs> How's that for a, a little recap? That was uh, that was pretty good. That was pretty good, even on their walls. Yeah. So uh, so essentially, what these these people, this couple, Ball and Rial, they are uh, they are exactly as you say, they're refugees, but they lost their daughter along the way. Yes, I lost the little girl who was with them. Um, it's it's of course a very sad thing. You know, it, it was very tragic how they lost her. Um, they were they were sailing over some water and and the boat sinks and it was just terrible 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 so you can tell that they're still grieving and they still feel really really terrible about the whole experience um, but there is some guilt involved there too and I I'm I'm loath to spoil what exactly that guilt is but but we can say I think truthfully that they are that they are definitely grieving they feel terrible about the fate of, of this girl. And they discover what, what comes about is that they start, it's especially ball. He starts to see his little girl in the house, especially in the walls. Um, after a while, his wife sees her too. And he says, she says to him that essentially what they're seeing is an apith. Or a night witch, uh, which is a, a person who essentially haunts people when they do something really, really, really terrible. So this is sort of this is sort of the the setup. You have this this dark, almost demonic presence in this house where you have where you have this little girl and other things lurking inside the house. Ball is trying to assimilate. He really wants to become a, a a citizen of Great Britain, and so he's doing his best to assimilate. He's dressing. He's he's learning the the football chants. He's doing all this stuff. He's trying to become uh, this this good British citizen. His wife is not that keen on that. She feels she feels the pull of of her home. And you can feel that all the while there's this tension going on. Ball really wants to make it work. But because of this presence in the house, he needs to figure out what's going on. He needs to free the house from this thing so that they can go on and become good British citizens. So he starts doing a lot of things that are very counterproductive to becoming, you know, to to their asylum-seeking ways. Yeah, that for me was both the strength and ultimately the place where the movie stumbled, in my opinion, in that I was really, when I watched the trailer for this prior to watching the movie, and it was setting it was up, sound on. what's that? You watched the, the trailer, with, watch the the trailer with the sound on, yes. And, and they were setting up that premise that, of course, not only are they being haunted by something nefarious in this house, but that it's it's affecting their ability to assimilate and affecting the perception of others on their ability to assimilate. And that the sort of the promise of that socially uh, social commentary, I, I was what had me intrigued and most interested in the movie. And although they did pay some lip service to that, I felt like they, they kind of failed to fully realize that commentary, like almost that commentary almost felt like a red herring in the end, because I felt like there were a couple of places that they could have gone with it and explored, explored it a little bit better where they would instead just give you a, a line here or there. And I felt like that sort of did a disservice to, to what could have been some pretty powerful social commentary. Um, like, especially dealing with like PTSD that, you know, the complexity of PTSD and mental health when for asylum seekers and refugees and the difficulty of assimilation. Like I felt like there was, you could have probably added, you know, five to seven minutes of additional scenes to play around with that still had a really tightly paced movie and had a more powerful commentary, not in the midst of the, the horror film itself. Nope, I totally disagree. Totally, totally, totally disagree. I think that that the the movie first and foremost is designed to be 
a ghost story. It is yeah. meant to be this haunting experience that you dive into with this couple. Um, secondarily, I think it really speaks to that 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 immigrant experience, that 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 foreign feeling, and and, and because of that, I think that it it actually works in a really, really complimentary way. This this wasn't this wasn't primarily like like say a movie like Get Out, which is a really effective horror story, but it's really meant to be more of social commentary. This flips the script. And when you see those elements of social commentary, it's actually done to I think heighten the tension. The thing one of the things that I really appreciated about this movie was how subtly it dealt with some of those societal issues. And it dealt with them in a way that heightened that sort of haunted house experience. You not only have the 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 things in the walls, right? These these unknown entities lurking inside the walls. But when you watch them go about their daily lives, especially Rial, where she's trying to get acclimated to this new, foreign, very, very strange land, it almost takes the the feeling of a haunted house. She spends a long time just trying to walk to a health clinic, right. and she finds herself in a maze where she can't find her way out. Ball looks up, and he sees this, this neighbor, almost ghostly neighbor, looking from outside the window, not, not giving any sort of facial expression at all. You have these, these horror elements that, that surround them that are not supernatural at all, and yet they feel just as haunting, in some ways a little more haunting than even what's going inside the house. I agree with you on that. I just felt like they maybe got of like realizing that premise. If you wanted to realize that premise, 10 out of 10, I felt like they kind of got to six and a half out of 10 and that they didn't even need that much more. I just, I wanted to see a little bit more of the perception of others on them. We got glimpses of it with their caseworker, right? With mm-hmm. the Matt, whatever his Matt Smith character. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, it was yeah. one of the doctors and Doctor Absolutely. Who that I've never seen. Um, I felt like we got Doctor little. Who. We got little. <laughs> is that what I, did I say? Doctor Who. Yeah, the Doctor Who you've never seen. Yeah, the Doctor Who who I've never seen. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I've actually okay. never seen any of Doctor Who, but he's also a Doctor Who who I've never seen. <laughs> All right, gotcha. <laughs> did it be Doctor Who whom I've never seen? Is that more correct? Whom I've never seen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, anyways that was where I wanted to see a little bit more of the perception of others of this couple as they were going through this experience. We got glimpses of it with his character. I wanted a little bit more of that to drive that point even further. And that's, that's, and and I get that you liked that they didn't, I just wish they would have, but that's also, you like the horror film. You like that. They didn't lean too far away from that. I wish they would have leaned a little bit more away from it. I, fits I, with liked, me. <laughs> I liked the horror film aspect to it. And I think that if you emphasized it more, it would have felt a little bit too on the nose. I mean, you saw, to me, you saw plenty of it. When he's walking through the mall, you see the security guard sort of following him. You see, I, I, I just think that, that it did a great job. What, what that, that whole um, undercurrent was done is, is essentially to set up in some ways, not, it does speak very powerfully to what it must feel like to emigrate to a very strange country under really difficult circumstances yeah. to emphasize the alienness of a place that's very familiar to us, you know, Britain. Um, but I think it was done in, in large part not to focus in on, on that particular aspect of the story, but to emphasize the growing divide between the husband and wife and, yeah. and sort of that central tension of, of why in this moment they're slowly sort of separating. And there's a huge tragedy that, that involves both of them. Obviously, they were running away from tragedy. There's a huge amount of, of stress and tension that went into that. But, but you, see, you see those elements of, of alienness that they're experiencing and it's done both to to talk about their experience, but also 
to stress, to draw our attention to how differently these two people are experiencing this, this one country and why that is one of the instruments that is slowly pushing, pushing them apart and perhaps driving one or even both of them to insanity. So, Paul, uh, I have to say uh, this was a better experience than I expected, given how I watched the film. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and even in spite of the fact that I wanted it to be slightly less horror than it was, and I wanted it to be more in that thriller social commentary territory of Get Out than in the horror haunted house territory of what was house? What was that one you made me watch? The Black and White House on Haunted Hill? No? What was the Haunting. Called? The haunting. the haunting, yeah, whatever yes. that garbage movie was. That was um, great. It was so good, so good. And so I do, I do get the divide there, and I think you sort of see it in uh, the review score for this film. It, it sort of scores between a five and a ten, you know, pretty squarely, almost squarely there in the middle. Because there's some folks who, you know, are want it to be more horror. Some folks that want it to be more social commentary and some people that are okay right there in the middle. And so it kind of gets, it just drops and ends up being, as you would say, in my opinion, fine. It was just you know, fine. Let me just correct you a little bit. When you look at Rotten Tomatoes, it actually has 100%. I don't look at Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. Tomatoes. IMDb. <laughs> IMDb or die. The people are die. <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, a hundred percent. It is really effective for the audience score or for the critic score. Oh, for the critic score. Who cares see, about the audience? That makes sense. I can see <laughs> critics. I can see critics fawning all over it and ignoring the fact that it doesn't do its job as effectively as it could have. But it does do its job really super effectively. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let me just say that for unlike Jake, for fans of horror movies, this is a PG thirteen horror movie that really pays off on the chills. You know, this is not a graphic movie necessarily. This is not a gory movie. It does have some moments. Um, But for the most part, it predicates all of its terror on the suspense. The things you see out of the corner of your eye, these mysterious things that you just can't see, and the tension of this couple and what they might do to each other if the ghosts don't get to them first. Because of that, I think it's if you're looking for a good, pretty clean horror movie for Halloween, this really fills fills the basket for me. You know what, what did fill the basket for me was the ending being as abrupt and sort of obscure but also meaningful at the same time like the visuals that they did at the end yeah yeah um, where you you just got different shots of the couple standing in the home in the house and the different things that you saw as they had those shots i really liked that i thought that was even if i wished it would have done some other things differently i thought that was really effective and i was very happy with the way it ended yeah, yeah, it it was a great ending. It, there was a lot of, and and I know that we need to wrap this up, but but there was a surprising amount of humor too. And unlike Dune, the humor actually worked for me. Yeah, it it didn't feel foreign to the film, ironically, in Dune, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. There you have it. His house. It is available on Netflix. So if you've got that Netflix subscription, you can watch it there. And uh, if you like that kind of thing, I don't. If you're like, if you resonate more with me than you do with Paul, eh, it's not worth it. But if you if, resonate more with Paul than you do with me, then it's very worth it. If you want Jake to watch the movie with the sound on, you let us know on Twitter. Yeah, let me know. I'm happy to ignore you and your request. <laughs> don't even feel bad about it in the slightest. <laughs> not even a little bit. Um, and with that, It's time for the most least important thing. Welcome to the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours. It's where we look at the gargantuan fat monstrosities of the Harkonnen clan and we reduce them down to the 
the little slight frame of Paul Atreides. That's way too inside. That's way too inside baseball. Look, no spoilers, but Timothy Chalamet is a small and slight human being. And what they do with Stellan Skarsgård as the Ooh. leader of, as the Baron of the Harkonnen clan, yes. uh, he is a very unslender and slim being. Very unslender and slim. Yes. He, so, uh... Mountains, molehills. That's what we do. We pick them up. <laughs> we slip and swap. It's the most least important thing. Paul, what do you have for us today? Oh, man. That might have been one of your best lead-ins ever because I tell you what, yeah, that that Skarsgård guy, he was uh, he was frightening in that. But on to my most least important thing. This is, this is really of least importance to almost everybody except for those who live or visit Christchurch, New Zealand. Mm. Apparently, the city of Christchurch has fired its official wizard. Oh. After two decades, they have decided to take the wizard off the payroll. Um, it was very sad uh, for at least the wizard in question. His name is Ian Brackenberry Channel. Uh, he was known as the Wizard of New Zealand. Hmm. He actually had that on his official documents, including his passport. He's been working on the Christchurch City Council's payroll since 1998, receiving an annual salary of about $11,000 for doing his wizardry work. Uh, his, his actual job title said he needed to provide acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services as part of the promotional work for the city of Christchurch. Of course, Lord of the Rings was filmed in New Zealand. I am sure that his job had something to do with that. Uh, to to help people, you know, feel part of uh, Peter Jackson's amazing uh, creation. Um, but apparently he got into a little bit of trouble, as so many other people do, with some offensive remarks. Mm. He made some rather unfortunate remarks about women. And he did. He was pretty critical of the, the city's new tourism strategy. So they said, you know what, wizard, we are not worried about being turned into mice. We are firing you. And so far, all the uh, all the city council members are still very much alive and human. So he wasn't he wasn't employed to be like a wizard wizard. Like Not a, a wizard wizard. He was employed is like a Santa Claus. Exactly. Got it. Theoretically, but you never know. I mean, who knows? There would be. I mean, why would you apply for a job as a wizard anyway, unless you had some wizarding experience, right? So who knows? Maybe he has some some secret abilities that we have no idea of. Yeah, could be. Interesting. I I didn't know that. I had no clue about any parts of that story. (laughs) For 23 years, I remained in ignorance as they employed a full... It doesn't sound like a full-time. It sounds like a part-time no, wizard. No, At $11,000 a year, that's a part-time wizard. Let's yeah, you don't want your wizard like sleeping in the gutters, right? Yeah. So surely he had another job. Yeah, yeah. But there you go. I have got two most least important things two. for you today. Dose. Wow. Dose. One of them is uh, in honor of the fact that today when we are recording is the opening of the 2021-2022 NBA season, regular season. And I saw a factoid that was pretty sweet. And that factoid is that Steph Curry for the Golden State Warriors, Paul, he could miss. Let's listen to this fact. If he missed 500 three-point attempts, if he shot his next 500 three-point attempts and missed all of them, he would still have a higher career three-point percentage then number two on the NBA all-time list for most for best three-point percentages in that in Ray Allen. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that I mean that really is. I I know that your your fixation on Steph Curry is a little bit alarming, but still, that is an amazing stat. It is incredible. He could just throw up clunkers all season long for the rest of this whole regular season. And still be the greatest shooter in NBA history. So is he the is he the funnest basketball player to watch in your lifetime? I I have to think he is. I mean, there's nothing. I've watched LeBron James. I've watched all these other stars. Kobe. It's 
it's just different watching Steph. He just has a different level of energy. He also plays the game differently. Like he has to, he, although he can create his own shots, he plays more as a team player, I think, even than LeBron or Kobe do. And when he takes over the game, um, it's, he's still using his teammates a lot. Like how much time he spends without the ball is pretty inspiring. He's just running around like a little, like he's out of control. There you go. I'm biased, of course, but. There you go. Uh, the second most least important thing is less exciting than Steph Curry. And that is that I have to announce a hiatus for pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all due to some circumstances in the personal life of your very own know-it-all. Um, I need a little extra time than I can afford to give to the show and do it the credit that I want to do it. And so we're taking a little pause here. Hopefully, my goal is that we'll be back up and running doing a best of 2021 pop culture and entertainment list come January of 2022, because those are a lot of fun and I love making lists. <laughs> we didn't just want to leave you hanging in the meantime, wondering like, where are fanboy and know-it-all? Are they alive? Are they <laughs> kicking? Are they breathing? Yes, we are. Uh, well, and we had to make you, as far we, as had we, know. we had to make you watch at least one more horror movie, right? right. And, and Paul had to make me watch one more horror film because he's sick and twisted that way. <laughs> but we are alive as far as we know. We're not future seers, but we are alive as far as we know. And we're not just trying to leave you hanging. So keep stay subscribed. Don't kick us out of your subscription list just yet. The goal is for this to just be a little hiatus, a little fall slash early winter break for know-it-all. As he as he sorts some stuff out in his own head, and you know, just uh, does life stuff, you know, those sorts of things. Well, and here's the thing: neither of us are actually going going away. We will That's be, right. uh, we will still be around. We will still be uh, sniping at each other on Twitter whenever we have a chance. I'm right. at AC Paul, and I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. So, and yeah, it it, it has been an exciting f- for me. Let me just say, this is a pause. But let me just say that uh, that it has been an enjoyable four and a half years so far and looking forward to a longer part two. That's right. Season two. We'll just call it the last four and a half years, season one. <laughs> season one of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. And season two is going to get crazy. <laughs> So we, we appreciate all of you, our friends, and we love hearing from you, whether that's on the blog, whether that's on Twitter. Um, of course, you know our handles by now. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again and hearing your segment suggestions, hearing your trash talk, hearing your snipes at one or both of us on Twitter. Mostly uh, Jake. Mostly me. That's I, I can handle it a little bit better than Paul with his. Well, you just get more wrong, so you need more correction. <laughs> oh, that's what it is. Sorry, I got I read my I read my cue card wrong. <laughs> but uh, keep that subscribe button mashed. Don't go anywhere on us. We'll be back. And uh, until then, in my own nonsensical way, as I say every time. Until then, I'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.